Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Deprado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission. Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Imagine a conversation about education with somebody who's used to making a big splash. Annabelle Asprey is the head of digital education at the ABC. Of course, she was a history and literature teacher, and we can't wait to talk to her about the way in which we can think about constructing a program for public education that drives agendas forward around helping learners to thrive in their world. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go, Adriano. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our series premium sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We are delighted to be partnering with the team at Open Parachute. If you want to teach mental health to your students, but you don't have time to become an expert, Open Parachute can help. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. I'm really excited to have Annabelle on series six of the Game Changers podcast. Phil, before we get into our guest, how is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy going? Look, I, I have to say, Adriano, I've, I've been dealing with conflict all day. Mm-hmm. It turns out that there were two beardy people with ink who were arguing over oat milk or almond milk yeah. in my local cafe this morning. And, and we couldn't resolve the issue in the end other than agreeing that dinosaurs like me who use mujus in their coffee are clearly the spawn of Satan. That's it, Adriano. I've got nothing else for you. Look, we, we, we don't have any of that type of conflict out here in Sunshine whatsoever. It's it's all very calm and amicable and everyone gets along famously. A good bowl of pho and you're done. Perfect. There we go. There we anyway, go. enough of this nonsense. Annabelle, it is wonderful to have you with us today. And I'm going to ask you the very first question that we ask all of our Game Changers guests. And that is, tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Ah, accidental leadership. <laughs> um, is, is going to be um, on my tombstone. Uh, so I did a Bachelor of Arts and a double degree in, oh, well, a, a double major in English and history and found myself a little bit at a loss at the end of the, the BA and decided that I would do a dip ed because, you know, that that sort of seemed to be like some one of the sort of natural sort of progressions into it. And during the dip ed year, I was working at a school being a teacher assistant and as it turned out in that final year or in that during that dip ed, um, the school actually asked me if I would like to take on a teaching job once I finished my dip ed, which was great. But they also gave me the opportunity to um, attend as a company, a year 11 and 12 group of students who were traveling to France um, as, as a French speaker. So I was sort of... Um, thrown you know from the fat to the fire um, in sort of learning how to manage young people and I was fairly minted new going into a year 11 and 12 classroom and I just realized now that I was only a few years older (laughs) than the students so that became sort of quite sort of confronting especially during um, parent-teacher nights. I was at the school for about 10 years I loved 
that teaching job. It was a beautiful environment. The students, um, you know, were very blessed in from a teaching point of view in that, you know, there were sort of classroom management issues or those sorts of things. It was a very academic school that prided itself on academic achievement. I loved teaching literature and Australian history and revolutions, which is the, the VCE history course mm-hmm. here in Victoria. And during my time, like as, as things progressed, um, I must say that I became very aware of, well, what are the next steps? And I was very clear in that I did not want to become a principal and I did not want to become the, the head of campus. Um, I didn't have those ambitions. And I thought my efforts were best placed in assisting teachers and helping teachers with their own professional learning. And I had become involved in the History Teachers Association of Victoria as a teacher and started presenting at their conferences, um, writing books and writing textbooks for other companies as well. And I really enjoyed that work. And as I started to sort of decide, well, what are my next steps? Um, You know, I felt like my my best efforts would be helping teachers um, support and support them in their professional, their own professional learning. And I really found that very rewarding. And an opportunity did come up at the History Teachers Association to help manage all their professional learning. And I was there for a couple of years and eventually um, I was the executive director overseeing all of the operations of the association. And that in itself was very rewarding, but also taught me a lot about management, also taught me a lot about um, running not-for-profits, also taught me a lot about um, running a business. And it was a profitable business as well, even though it's a a not-for-profit business, the the subject associations in Victoria are very well-funded in terms of they've got a lot of capital behind them. So you were able to actually create things and make things that are really great for teachers. Um, Whereas a lot of other subject associations really do rely upon um, just solely volunteers where we had a staff at the HTAV, which, um, you know, make things a whole lot easier. Um, And one day, I'm very happy in my role as executive director, working with, um, you know, amazing history teachers, but also working with all of the government authorities, working with um, the, you know, the other his, um, professional historical associations um, around the state and around the country, contributing to, you know, discussions around the national curriculum. And it was my hairdresser who sent me an ad to... Um, an ABC job, which was called Head of Digital Education at the ABC to start up a new portal. And he said, I think you would be good at this this job. And I went, oh, maybe I would be. I had never had considered it. And um, as we say, the rest is history. And um, I will have been at um, the ABC um, for nine years coming up and it's um, haven't looked back and love the team that I work with and the work that we do for all of the digital edge. Well, I call it educational material. Um, we took the digital part out of my title because really dig- there's digital education and education. I know how you can yeah. see what the difference is. And um, th- that's, the, that's where we are today. Thank you very much for uh, taking us on that journey. And, and I, I'm really confident that our, our listeners will really appreciate the kind of non-linear nature of that particular journey and that there are always ways in which to lead that don't necessarily have to be 
at that level of deputy principalship or principalship in, in the educational sphere. There are so many people within our landscape that are leading, you use the word revolution in relation to what you used to teach. I'm gonna use that, that word in relation to the fourth industrial revolution that we're in. And there are many people who are leading, are leading voices and really making really substantial change in this space that is impacting positively on schools. Some might think negatively, but many will see it as a positive way forward because we also see that today's learning is relevant for tomorrow's world. And in many ways, the future's already here and many schools are already late you know, to, to the conversation. So that leads me to this notion of the fourth industrial revolution. And so much of what we have read and seen in the last 20 years has seen the rise of technology and its influence on many aspects of our life. In fact, you know, if we then think about the, the, the byproducts of the internet and things like social media that have, that have become phenomenons of our time, how, I'll ask it this way, what do you then believe or why do you believe, you might not, it is crucial that then us in schools develop the digital and media literacy of every young person in our care to ensure that they thrive in work, in living, in learning and in leading. First of all, I, I think we have to, I think it's really important to look at like what the definition of media literacy is. And there, there are a few different definitions of what media literacy is. But generally, we look at it as the ability to um, access, act, create, analyse, all uh, media in all of its forms and it's not just related to being able to detect disinformation or misinformation or um, um, in inverted commas fake news um, it's not just about being able to navigate the newscape although that is a very important part of it but it's also about understanding the influence that entertainment media and all media forms have upon your daily life so why I think it's important is I think media literacy is essential to you being a citizen in this world. And if you don't have those digital and um, capabilities, the ability to access, the ability to analyse, the ability to form certain opinions on things that are presented around you through various types of media, you're going to have a very difficult time of um, thriving within society. And I'm not just putting that down to having an analytical brain, it's also about participation. You have to, to be a, a citizen who can participate in society, that might be going to the bank, knowing how to fill out a form, knowing how to do an online survey, um, knowing you know how to um, do online banking, for example. These are all skills that you need to be functional within you know at the democratic society that we have, and to be able to also participate in it when, especially when you go to the polls. So, Annabelle, I'm really interested in hearing about that accidental leadership and the way in which you're exercising it at the ABC. I guess there are just a couple of different aspects about it that uh, I'd like to explore. The first is the notion of how does that sort of technological literacy or the, or the, the technological enrichment of an education assist someone to become a responsible citizen? I think you have to look at it as in terms of digital inclusion. And digital inclusion is whether a person can access, afford, and have the ability to connect and use online technologies effectively. 
And so it's things like what I was saying before about being able to function in society. But for in, in, a, in a school's environment, um, it's also about being able to understand the subject matter that comes across to you through specialised subjects. And in and of itself, the technology part and the t- um, technological literacy part is embedded with the subject um, expertise that sort of comes across in, in subjects. So you, you, you sort of can't divorce, you can't divorce the two. So it's... Um, very empowering to to be able to you've got to be able to manage those digital skills and those digital literacies to be able to also master the subject um, matter knowledge that you're dealing with okay so that's a really sophisticated sort of approach to it so there's a holistic approach and there's also an embedded approach that sits within it i'd like now to turn to the question of the leadership of the abc in the public debate about education generally and about issues generally and, and, and so on and so on. And, and you know, it's really, it's not about the ABC, it's just about public broadcasters generally, because I wouldn't want to put you in a compromising situation about this. It's apparent to me that over recent times, particularly in uh, the digital media of the ABC, that on certain issues, a stand is being taken. In other words, that leadership is being shown and you know, if I think back to James Dibble reading the news in the 1970s and that very neutral sort of approach to doing things, it's sort of the dragnet approach, you know, just the facts kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We don't live in that world anymore. We live in another world. So I guess what I want to say is that as part of the responsible citizenship and a part of the, the leadership of public broadcasting, how do you make decisions about what stands you're going to take? Let's say inclusion is a great example of it because Adriana and I, we, we love inclusion. That's, that's, we really, really believe in it. But there are other people who don't believe that inclusion is the way to go and believe that it's taking, you know, so how, how do you make that decision that this is what we're going to stand for? Um, so first and foremost, I think it's really important to understand what public service journalism is and what it does. Yeah. And um, journalism in, its, in and of itself is meant to be unbiased, presenting the facts, drawing upon the facts and not present an opinion. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we, we see people in the media who can present an opinion, um, who can present debates. They um, Certain other media outlets might actually take a particular stance. So a particular media group may take a stance on a particular issue. But public service journalism, because it is funded by the t- taxpayer, we can't do that at the ABC. It goes all against our the very heart of what public service journalism is, but also goes against what journalism in itself is as well. And it goes against, as I said, it goes against um, everything what the ABC Charter stands for. So the ABC is meant to educate, entertain and inform all Australians. That's the, the sort of baseline of its charter. So... I would be, and, you know, the, the ABC gets pulled up about this, about, you know, whether mm-hmm. certain views are being, you know, presented um, fairly or unfairly all the time. I mean, I, I would hate to be the, the manager of the inbox of the complaints because I could imagine. That <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. if, my, if my inbox is any indication of it, of even the educational material that we get, we know that people care very passionately about the ABC and that the information that we're sharing is presented in a way that so that we don't have a stance um, you know that that we're doing we're 
making sure that you know things are presented fairly, that um, our investigative journalists are shining lights into dark places to hold people to account and to hold institutions to account. And that, that's at the crux of what all journalism is. So whether you're actually part of the public broadcaster or you work for um, I'm sure that, that, well, we know that the journalistic standards of, say, Fairfax, um, even, even the Murdoch Press has journalistic standards um, that, you know, that, that, are, that are out there very clearly on their website. So journalists do try to present the facts, but of course, when commercial media comes into play, it can be a bit challenging and this is all this all comes back to being media literate and understanding how institutions and businesses form and shape media if you if you don't understand um, the perhaps the influence that paid advertising might have on the the news output of your journal or of your magazine or of your newspaper um, that that becomes a little bit problematic because it, it can influence however I will just make a caveat there I, I think it's very important that not all media that has advertising doesn't doesn't mean that you can't you can't trust it um, and I often make that I point that out because we know, for example, like the journalistic standards of the New York Times. The New York Times relies upon a subscription model. It has lots of advertising. So, for example, you do need to know about the way that the media is shaped by institutions, businesses, and by the journalists themselves. So what I'm hearing you say there, and again, there's a, there's a very sophisticated responses that you're giving in, in, in really tricky territory, but you know, it's what, what you're talking about goes to the, the heart of technological literacy, digital literacy, media literacy, which, you know, many, and probably Adriana would be one of them, would be arguing is at the forefront of what an education today is all about. And that's the difference between, and correct me if I've got this wrong, Annabelle, taking a stand on your values, such as your journalistic principles and so on. So as you said, the ABC journalists very clearly feel that it's the right thing to do to shine a light into dark places. Now, to do that, you have to form a view as to what a light place and a dark place is. But on the other hand, you're not taking a stance around that. So you've still, you've still got the, the breadth that allows you to see all perspectives and then form a judgment. So what we're saying is that the activity of journalism, like every other activity, the activity of education does not sit within a moral vacuum. You know, you know, I think sometimes people get this idea. It's a little bit like, you know, it's on Harry Potter. You can see Voldemort leaning in and, and sucking out the morals of a person and then saying, here you go, there's objective decision-making. You can't do that, can you? <laughs> you've, got, you've got to be able to say at the end of the day, there are things which are important to a democracy. They are defined for us by our charter in your case or, you know, your fundamental principles or your values. We are going to act in accordance with them. There are certain principles about being even-handed around things and the way we're going to do it, and then we're going to pursue it without fear or favour at the end of the day. And in that way, public education like that which you're providing becomes the very model of digital citizenship for our future and acts as a bulwark for our democracy. And, you know, never mind all those naysayers who um, watch cable TV news and, and talk about <laughs> fake news and, and all of that sort of thing. Box on, keep going. Adriano, I'm handing over to you. My yeah, rant I, is, my rant I, wasn't, is over. I, wasn't, I wasn't too sure if there was a question in that or it's just... No, like, no, no. But no, I, think no, that's no. An, I think what you're sharing is really significant, Phil. And I, I just want to... This is going to lead into my next question, Annabelle. I, I remember uh, as, a, as a young Australian growing up, the ABC was an important place for me to access learning, play, 
and discovery. Just the same as SBS was from a context of me being able to see people that looked like my ethnic background, you know, uh, migrants from Europe and, and have an understanding of food and culture and language. And I think for me, the two broad public broadcasters in Australia provided me with such rich access and awareness about identity, about self and just about discovery, you know, uh, and, and, I, and I feel that they continue to do that and, and they do that uh, exceptionally well. I mean, th there aren't many broadcasters around the globe that do it as well as, as both of those entities. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because you're present here today, because it leads into last year, 2020, at the height of the pandemic, ABC Education became this crucial public resource for all learning communities utilising a continuous or remote learning delivery model. It was a model, particularly for us here in Victoria, that was totally foreign to anything that we had seen before. We actually thought, it's, we're only going to be in it for a minute. Our friends in South Australia were only in it for a minute. Our friends in New South Wales and Queensland were only in it for a minute and, and, and Western Australia. But in this great state of Victoria, 114 consecutive days. And I can recall distinctively you and ABC Education being extremely proactive and continually presenting opportunity after opportunity to say, okay, we know this is a new paradigm. We know this is confusing, but we've got you. We've got resources here to help you navigate through this and empower you to move it from a remote teaching context to real learning. Can you talk a little bit to our listeners about some of the services and products that the ABC then offered in that space and why partnering with education is such a fundamental thing for the ABC? First of all, I will say that I set my KPIs um, in February <laughs> and then March rolled around. Oh, right, of course. <laughs> and you threw them all out. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that, that's a little bit like how we started the podcast, really. <laughs> yeah. Just smash them, just smash them out of the park. Who, who would have thought that a pandemic would um, turn all eyes onto ABC education? It was... Um, <laughs> certainly well, you know what we needed like I mean in, in the previous year you know we'd had you know up to you know five and a half million um, users of, of the site um, that not only come from around Australia but also from um, overseas as well uh, and what happened at, at the beginning of um, 2020 look I know myself I was in denial I had holidays planned to several places and um, didn't really sort of cancel them until um, early March <laughs> I was still in the in the mindset that this was just going to be a flu and a passing thing but what became very evident as Victoria went into lockdown was that the ABC and with education at the heart of its um, charter to educate all Australians and as the public broadcaster as well is to well what sort of what could we actually offer in addition to what we already offer. So what we managed to do was ABC Education works within the entertainment and specialist area of the ABC. Um, we 
doubled our screen time of educational programming, which happens during the week. So um, ABC has had a long tradition of educational broadcasting, um, usually from um, 10 to 12, um, Monday to Friday during school term time. And that's where you can see some of the old favourites, like behind the news, but also other educational programs, not only from the ABC, but from um, other trusted broadcasters like the BBC as well. We doubled that, that went from 10 o'clock to, um, to 3 p.m. Um, during the day. And people might think, oh, well, you know, you're the ABC, you have lots of programs to fill in those spots. But the, the, the actual um, logistics of getting that to happen in such a short turnaround is just actually quite amazing. I think the other thing that put us in such good stead and what we were able to provide is the fact that we worked so closely with the states and territories and trying to understand what their needs were as they too were going into this sort of brave new world of remote learning and trying to understand what sort of resources that that students, te teachers and students and families would need. Not only did we end up serving um, assisting students and teachers with their endeavours in remote learning, but we also gained a whole new audience of parents who were supporting their students at home with content. And especially um, parents at home who were supporting their students who perhaps might not have had a um, connected device. So that at least there was that broadcast um, television, you know, um, block on during the day that had some educational material that, that may have supported what um, the the student was doing at school or um, where the parent became you know very important in supporting the student um, you know they had some educational materials to fall back on and we were really proud to um, partner with New South Wales Department of Education and the Victorian Department of Education and we co-produced a series of mini lessons which were really focused on direct instruction around literacy and numeracy they were meant they're not meant to be exhaustive lessons on you know any one topic but they were introductions to topics that would support teachers and parents at home who were supporting their students and introducing them to numeracy and literacy concepts. Just to and cut in there Annabelle sorry to interrupt you um, we, we produced the continuous learning toolkit called people in practice and it was downloaded 20,000 times in five days and one of the one of the organizations that we reference in there was ABC Education for that exact reason. There was this narrative already occurring, you know, in the media that there's going to be this loss of learning, you know, yeah. this where, where there's no real measure of that. That's just a, yeah. a, 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 a false truth. And um, we were directing them from our toolkits to those uh, direct instruction, literacy, numeracy kind of uh, tools, which are brilliant. Uh, and, and I would hope that post-pandemic, uh, people continue to use them because they they are outstanding outstanding products. Yeah, we love it. We we love we love your work, Annabelle, and we love the work of your team. I mean, it's, so much of what you're talking about here is about again that that evolving the role of the national of a, of a public broadcaster as an agency of education and providing a role model for others and and so on and so on. So again, you know, this this whole idea of a of a static vision of of what you are and how you are. Every public education program, every public education broadcaster has to evolve to meet the needs of the time and interpret it that way. The uniqueness of the, the mini lesson format, it very sort of interesting. We had to, like, I mean, TV production is, um, you know, can be quite, can become quite complicated, but we had a very short turnaround time. But the uniqueness of these particular mini lessons were that they used real 
life practicing teachers. So teachers who were not actually always camera ready, usually um, the ones who put themselves forward were obviously very happy to share their practice and very effervescent and, you know, fulfilling dream, um, childhood dreams of being on play school or, you know, those sorts of things. But teachers worked without teleprompter or auto cue. Um, and that they were lessons that they wrote themselves that they we wrote in conjunction with the department and with the ABC just in terms of we didn't have the um, the educational or the pedagogical expertise we really relied upon the teachers and the department to um, support us with that but in the end what we got was a very polished um, set of lessons and with talent that just really showcased that yeah that really showcased the ability skills and knowledge of teachers in Australian classrooms. So Annabelle, I want to I want I want to follow on this theme of of dare I say progressive thinking around it. That that's with a small p, not a big p, for any of our North American listeners who get worried whenever you use words like progressive and liberal. They actually have original derivations, and we can we can stay with them. We don't have to evolve everything. But we are thinking about the evolution of school. So as you're thinking about the evolution of your education programs and of the role of the public broadcaster to support the education and the education systems and teachers and families everywhere, let's talk about school, all right? So what are the aspects of school and that, that, that thing we call school that you believe that we should be preserving 10 or 20 years or even longer into the future? So what's the stuff we should cling to? Because Quite often, that's the stuff that that's the helpful starting point. Saying, "Well, we want to hang on to these things," and that means by default, everything else is up for grabs. Maybe this sounds old-fashioned to me. I think it's the the skills and knowledge that encompass it, that that teachers and curricula bring to students that we that we want to preserve. And that might seem a bit wishy-washy, but ultimately the way that I see it, if you don't have the, the skills and knowledge and subject expertise, um, and you know, regardless of um, when I talk about subject expertise, you know, whether that is history, literature, or entrepreneurship, or looking at expertise in wellness, I think you have to have that 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 level of um, expertise and, and passion for that um, preserving that knowledge within schools. And the way that the ABC can contribute to that is to continue to make great Australian content that represents and sounds like Australia. So back to what you were saying before, Adriana, to make sure that it reflects the Australia that we're living in. And I think that's the way that the ABC can contribute to that. I will say that I don't know, I don't think, well, no, definitively, I can say that it's not the ABC's job to shape schooling, but it is to work in conjunction with the very changing um, nature of education and school systems, and for the ABC to work with um, education departments to work with cultural um, institutions around Australia to help bring the best content to Australian students and teachers. What, what I hear in, in that response to Phil's question about fundamentally what's sacred, you know, in schools and what we should, what we should keep is, for me, is complementing what you said a moment ago about utilising practitioners, you know, the people on the ground. And what I'm hearing you say is that the one thing that we need to keep preserving is this deep consciousness about the people and the resources that we have in our schools. Because fundamentally, you know, from my perspective, schools are a social construct. And if we learn anything from the pandemic, 
and that is that community matters and people matter. Mm -hmm. and, and often it's the adults in that community that shape the nature of the culture. And we, and we, we have remarkable educators in this country and we're so blessed, our young people are so blessed to have access to them. You've witnessed that firsthand having these practitioners come into the ABC, collaborate with them, and you're tapping into their inherent expertise. But it's more than that, isn't it? It goes beyond their expertise of their subject and content knowledge. It goes to the fact that they genuinely give a shit and care about young people and wanting to see them thrive. And, and for me, we talk about that at a school for tomorrow in the phrase of a character apprenticeship, that one of the most powerful things that happen within a school that we, we don't want to ever see not preserved or lost is that character apprenticeship between the teacher and, and, and the student. And then the novice ultimately becomes the expert and helps the expert become the novice in things as well. So there's this beautiful kind of cyclical nature that goes on. You know, now on reflection, I think what matters is that one thing you want to preserve in education is having people care about kids. Yeah. <laughs> And then perhaps the skills and knowledge stuff comes a little bit later. Like, I mean, if you're in the profession and you don't like kids, you're in the wrong profession. Yeah, but, you know, Annabelle, it, 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 we talk about, you know, it starts with belonging and everything, but you demonstrated so beautifully before that when you had to pivot to this space and people were coming to you uh, looking for answers and support, you had deep listening and a consciousness to think about what's the perspective of the parent? What's their current context? Some of, some of them lost their jobs at the time, you know, they were in a real, they were in a personal crisis, yet they wanted to be brave for their kids. You know, what does it mean for this adult who has never, it, from a teacher who's never worked in that paradigm? What does it mean for a student who normally goes to every day and is able to high five their mates and can't now, you know, do that physically or hug their, their friends or, you know, and do all that. Let's pause for a moment to remind our listeners about the important work of Open Parachute for Wellness in Schools. You know your students are struggling with their mental health, but you're not a trained therapist. Open Parachute can help you. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. So I want to explore this a little bit further about the notion of consciousness in schools. You know, because it's often, it's often the case that we can write a beautiful kind of diversity statement and we could run an event for particular groups within schools and then we tick that off saying, well, we've done our International Women's Day. We've done our... Uh, dedication to Pride Month. You know, we've done all that. But how do we help schools really understand their role is broader than just the knowledge and the skill of a con and the content of, of learning areas. But we have a responsibility in the place of going beyond the walls in the context of our local and our regional and our global perspectives, where we go to the corners of this world to ensure that everyone is seen, heard and valued. How do we ultimately help schools make the world a better place? Um, well, in terms of, you know, how the public broadcaster can help that, I think the public broadcaster could and should actually demonstrate a much broader sort of representation of what's happening in schools and what's happening in school communities. And often is the case in the na national media cycle. And it's not just with the public broadcaster, it's with um, commercial outfits as well, or with other, you know, other network television um, news channels, is that there's standard things that are reported around education. They are 
literacy and numeracy, NAPLAM results, year 12 ATAR results. Um, there's usually a debate or two during the year between, you know, are private schools better than um, public schools? Usually um, debates around public funding. These are all very important national issues that we do need to discuss. But I also think we need to, as newsmakers, um, and informing the society, we need to have a much broader stroke and representation of teachers, students, and parents in, in these communities and the way that they're learning. And that's one thing that I've tried to do through the article section. We tried to profile the great things that are happening in schools or the challenging things that are happening in schools outside of those sort of major, you know, just always around literacy and numeracy, not, not diminishing the importance of, of those topics, but, you know, being able to highlight the, you know, the Indigenous language program that is happening in the northern part of this nation, that where one teacher has had an impact on a whole school community in preserving um, original language. Like, I mean, they're the sort of stories and that we know that they resonate with our teaching community. We know that they resonate with our parent community as well. And so I would like the public broadcaster to be able to um, have that sort of um, broader inclusion, you know, in their reporting of education. And I think um, the regional and local teams do that very well. They have very good connections with their communities. But what we're trying to do at, at ABC Education is to sort of highlight the heart of education in, in that respect. Oh, I love hearing you talk about the heart of education, Annabelle. I love hearing you. I mean, there's so much of what you're talking about all the way through this conversation to date that reveals sophistication in thinking uh, and an ability to move with breadth around things. It's, it's, it's about managing complexity. And managing complexity is not always about having simple and immediate answers straight away. You know, sometimes they take a while to cook and sometimes the answers aren't really clear and you have to, you have to keep moving forward somehow. We're in a situation in education right now where we start, we're at least entering the third or fourth phase of the pandemic. Um, we don't really know how long it's going to last for, but we do know that the expertise that is going to do people well and the self-efficacy is an adaptive one, you know, and, and that right throughout education, um, we need to think about the way in which we adapt and the way in which we move. So I'm going to, I want to ask you this question as Annabelle, the educator, rather than Annabelle, the head of education at the ABC. So, you know, because it's just, it's just three chalkies talking here, two of which happen to teach a, a better subject than one of whom's an art teacher. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so. Um, I'd like you to know there's a lot of history in art teaching, by yes. the way. Yeah. Enormous amount of art appreciation. And if you ever find yourself at the National Gallery of Victoria, Philip, uh, you'll realise how much history there is in our art. Oh, I only ever get called Philip when I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, it, in all seriousness, what we're talking about here is a way that we encourage layers of thinking, not binary thinking, that we encourage breadth of perspective in everything that we do rather than just pick a point and stick to it no matter what. How do we in education keep challenging binary thinking? How do we find a better way? Um, Adriana would call this a better normal. And I quite like that term, you know, one that equips and empowers and enables young people to move just from surviving or from standing still to actually thriving in this new world environment. 
Well, you, it, it happens all through history education. I'm going to go back to my roots in that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. Keep so going. You have to look at things, continually examine things and look at things from multiple perspectives to understand what's happened in the past, how it might actually shape the future, how it actually might help shape your own opinions about things. And like, I mean, that, that training, regardless of whether I'm being a history teacher or I'm running a small organisation or running, you know, working in a, in a big media sort of powerhouse like the ABC, it's the ability and, and for educators as well to be able to look at things from a multiple perspectives, but also be acutely aware of what's actually happening around them and being an active citizen and participate, um, a participant in society um, to demonstrate to their students that, you know, these are the, these are the fruits of your labour of, of actually, you know, being part of a robust education system. So for me, the, the thing that, um, yeah, we, if we keep on going back to multiple perspectives, be aware that narratives change, be aware that opinions change and be able to adapt ourselves um, to those changing circumstances, then I think we're in good stead. So listeners, you can't see what I'm saying right now because we, we can see each other on Zoom as we're talking here. I'm watching Annabelle really uh, not, not struggle with the question, but thinking very reflectively and very thoughtfully about what she's saying. And it's difficult, isn't it? Because there's a humility that comes with that notion of service. And then, then suddenly some bloke with a beard turns around and says, so how do you lead? How do you do this sort of thing? And you immediately become conscious about yourself and all of those sorts of things. When Tim Collins talks about great leadership, he talks about humility and willpower and, and the ability to bridge the apparently irreconcilable gap between the two. How have you found your learning about your leadership in your, in your position and through your career works best? In other words, how do you learn leadership? I have always tried to learn by example and the example that others have set before me. And that's, that, those examples might be um, ways of leading that I may or may not agree with. Um, or in most cases, they, are, they, they set exemplars for what I would hope to be um, in the support that previous leaders have shown to me um, in the, the leadership qualities that previous leaders have displayed um, to me. And I must say that I've had two of, some, uh, two of the greatest leaders at the ABC who have influenced my style of um, leadership. I've always been particularly open and I, I think I've always been particularly open um, and I've always been a very good listener to problems that arise within teams or within the organisation as well to sort of be able to think critically about that. So I would say that, yeah, that that, that gap is, you know, I've had some very good, I guess, mentors or, or people who have, who have demonstrated great leadership. And I put that down to um, the previous managing director, Mark Scott. I worked um, with a lady called Angela Clark who had not come from the education industry, but she taught me some things about leadership that I didn't even know um, existed. Um, for example, just about decision-making and um, also, you know, sticking by um, your rationale for making choices that you make. So I'm very thankful um, to those people. But um, 
<laughs> I'm very embarrassed to talk about leadership. I, 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 I do, I'm proud to say that, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of, you know, when we get the 360 reviews and I'm very reflective of, you know, I, I know my, my strengths and I know my weaknesses, but one thing that does seem to be consistent that I should be very proud of is that I've got a very robust, cooperative, intelligent uh, and productive team and I'm going to pat myself on the back because obviously that that does come with good leadership and I have received that that feedback from them but I really loathe talking about those sorts of achievements. So it is always very it's always very difficult when you're asked a question to, to describe your own leadership style and, and often when I'm asked that I, I often say well I think that's for others to judge you know I appreciate that but you know what's really important about this platform and game changers and what Phil and I continue to learn and continue to learn now across nearly 70 episodes and conversations that we've had, you know, in the last, you know, eight to, to 10 months is the common trait about everyone that we do have conversations with is this deep humility around what they do. That's the first common trait. However, as challenging as that might be then to articulate why we do what we do or how we do it, I actually believe we all know, as you just articulated then, what I heard was someone who is prepared to look and listen. I, I, I heard that someone is about uh, lifting others up and why team and team and being a team creator is significant to your leadership style because uh, you, that's not operating there from a deficit. That's about seeing the inherent value in each individual. And what I'm also hearing is someone who has a capacity and a preparedness to hold the line because, you know, that's the metal of us, isn't it? Because often, often, often when we get challenged and then we are then put into further question is when we, when, when that line becomes very rubbery on the stuff that matters, on the principles and the standards that matter. And so thank you very much for sharing uh, your journey. I have one more question before we wrap this up, uh, before Phil wraps it up. And that is one that relates to the construct of hope and gratitude. Against the context of this unparalleled challenges that we're all facing right now and the complexity uncertainty that, that I kind of feel is going to be our, our normal. Mm -hmm. constant how might we lead learn live and work with fearless inquiry to face an unknown and turbulent future with hope and optimism first of all i think we have to be very reflective and thankful that here in australia we have survived this unprecedented point of time in history um well and and done that relatively well i'm quite aware that you know people have been devastated um, by the virus um, here in Australia, and um, that is very sad. But compared to other parts of the world, I, you know, I think we have to draw upon our successes as, as a nation and be optimistic and hopeful about that. I also think, though, the hope and optimism comes from knowing that we can be flexible and we have to be flexible in our thinking and flexible in our approaches. And never has there been a time that like, I mean, I, I've always described change in education as, as, as occurring at a glacial pace. And I think what we've seen in the last 12 months is that pace was definitely accelerated. And look, it may have been forced upon us, but it shows that the change can actually happen. Although that the change can actually happen sounds like um, a middle-aged lady's self-help book, but... I <laughs> <laughs> the change in education can actually happen. So I, I think flexibility and that flexibility and to be optimistic and hopeful about um, the way that we lead with that flexibility. Annabelle, how are you doing there? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Excellent. That's, that's, Excellent. Like, that's like a tough question. It's like there was many, many different layers, but I was just trying to be as concise as possible. 
Do you know, Annabelle, that's in many ways sums up so much of what we've been learning from you today. It's about the layers of understanding and then trying to draw it together. Um, it's the strands to a thread. You have been reflective and thankful. You have been thoughtful and principled. And you have given us a very clear picture of the output of the work that your particular um, agency has been doing. It's, high, it's a high quality service to to both individuals and schools and communities and the nation as a whole. If we wanted a model for what a new hope looks like about things that are technologically enriched, that are human-centered, that are people in place and planet conscious and uh, that are intentionally purposeful, the work that you're doing right now is a terrific exemplar of that. Thank you so much for sharing um, so deeply of your thinking and of your expertise with us today on Game Changers. Um, we'd love to stay in touch with you and and keep learning from you along the way. Um, thank you for everything that you're doing. No, thank you. It was a, a delightful afternoon. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.